My guest today is a lawyer. He's a senior legal officer practicing IP licensing law. Please welcome Amos Alubunmi. Amos, how's it going? Doing well, RJ. Doing well, thank you. Yeah, good, good. Hey, thanks for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate it. No, no problem. And uh, congrats on uh, starting up the podcast. I think I think this is going to be a good resource for a lot of people. Much like myself back in the day, didn't have certain information, didn't have access to certain information, and now you find a friendly face and a friendly source of information like this. I think it's good. So congratulations right. on getting out of the ground. Well, appreciate that. Thanks, man. All right, so let's jump right into this. What do you do? What do I do? Okay. I am an in-house attorney at a cancer center, and I primarily focus on intellectual property transactions. So that's a lot said there. So let me kind of break some of that down. The cancer center that I work at, it's an academic institute, degree-granting institute. It's a cancer treatment center, and then we also have a research center. The part that I support is more on the research side. And on the research side, we have faculty members who are clinical staff that treat patients, and we have faculty members who are researchers, and we also have faculty members who do both. But on the research side, our faculty members often come up with new discoveries, largely in the world of pharmaceutical drugs or other kind of small molecule drugs to help treat cancer. And when that happens, one of the things I said that our cancer center is not is a pharmaceutical company. So we don't have the in-house capability to take that drug discovery and now manufacture it and turn it into a product that's sold on the market. So what happens instead is once our faculty members come up with those discoveries, we have resources both internally and externally to get protection patent-wise on those discoveries. Once we get that protection, then we have a department which is called the Office of Technology Commercialization. That office then goes out into the marketplace and tries to find partners and collaborators, um, usually biotech or pharmaceutical companies who can then take the patented idea, commercialize it, turn it into a finished product, and then sell it out on the open market. And where I step in largely for most of the transactions that I support, it's licensing transactions where that pharmaceutical company is going to agree to take the rights that we grant them to commercialize that intellectual property. And in exchange, they're going to pay us some money, some royalties, maybe milestone payments tied to, okay, if we sell $100 million of this product, we'll pay you, just making up a number, but pay you $10 million, something along those lines. And then there may be other parts of the agreement. And so I negotiate, draft, review those agreements. And so there's other kind of agreements and other kind of transactions I support as well, but most of them are in the realm of intellectual property and trying to find some way to commercialize it and push it forward. Okay. All right. So you're protecting the corporation. You said you're negotiating, drafting, reviewing these legal documents. So definitely know you have the legal knowledge, but what about the medical knowledge? Do you have to have much medical knowledge at all for what you do? So the direct answer is no, I don't have a background in biochemistry or biology. My undergraduate degree is actually electrical engineering. But what happens in intellectual property in, in the field, as an attorney, you definitely need to know what the technology is about. 
particularly if you're going to support a licensing negotiation, you need to know what the technology is about. You need to have some feel and understanding of it because you need to know how to best protect it. And you need to know how it can be best commercialized. So I'm not going to replace a cancer scientist anytime soon, but (laughs) I learn enough to understand what goes in the black box. The thing I need to be able to do the, the most is figure out how to protect the institution in our attempt to commercialize the rights that we're extending to that black box. Okay, it makes sense. And then you mentioned you were an electrical engineer in undergrad. It seems like that is a typical path for people in IP or intellectual property law. Yeah. Is that is that correct? And also, did you know back then that you wanted to be in IP law? Yeah, so uh, do we have enough time for me to kind of take you on a walk? <laughs> Definitely walk? do, yes. All right, so most attorneys that are intellectual property attorneys, and usually when we say intellectual property attorney, we're talking about someone that does one of a few things. You could be a trademark attorney, that's an attorney that specializes in helping clients obtain a trademark, which is you know something like a phrase, a symbol, a brand that's used to identify the supplier of a particular good and distinguish that supplier from other suppliers of maybe a similar kind of good in the marketplace. And as a, you know, as a supplier of a particular good, once you come up with what that trademark is, you don't want someone else in the marketplace to be able to use that same brand use that same symbol, try to sell a product of their own and have a consumer be confused as to whether or not it comes from the same supplier. So a trademark attorney is one. A copyright attorney is another. Copyright attorney is someone that's going to work with clients who come up with, typically we refer to copyrights as the expression of an idea. Um, It's original work of authorship that's fixed in a tangible medium of expression. And the idea there is the way that you've expressed a particular idea and recorded it. So that could be in writing, that could be in, on video, it could be on audio in the form of a, like music and a song. A copyright attorney is going to work with someone to help them maybe draft agreements so that they can commercialize the copyright. And that's something that you see at a publishing house who, you know, they're trying to sell books and there's authors. And so the publishing house is going to make sure they secure the right from the author to publish and reproduce that book. You may also see copyright attorneys involved with different music companies. And then the most popular kind of intellectual property attorney is the patent attorneys. And patent attorneys, there's different flavors. There's a attorney that works in patent prosecution. Patent prosecution is the field of working with an inventor so that they can obtain a patent from the United States Patent and Trademark Office or the Patent and Trademark Office of another jurisdiction. And when you're trying to get a patent, There's a back and forth associated with it. There's an art and a science to crafting arguments that convince the examiners at the Patent and Trademark Office that you come up with something that's new, which we refer to as novel, and it's not obvious, and it's useful. And so that back and forth requires a significant amount of know-how in terms of the law, and the more difficult and challenging part is finding someone that knows the law and knows the science. Mm -hmm. And that's difficult because when you look at a patent, a patent is going to be very detailed in describing the substance of the invention. I mean, we're talking down to the very nuts and bolts of what the invention is about, why is it important, how it works. And so that typically requires someone who has some knowledge, know-how, skill set in a particular technical field to be able to draft that kind of document. So that's what a patent prosecutor is. 
There's patent litigators. That's another popular form of IP attorney. Patent litigators is something I've done in the past. We might get to that later, but that's a attorney who represents someone who has had a patent issue. They feel like they've seen a product or a service in the marketplace that infringes their patent. Mm -hmm. So they file a lawsuit against the accused infringer and they make their argument in court as to whether or not that patent has been infringed. And so a patent litigator is someone who's gonna file that lawsuit, make the arguments on behalf of the inventor. And again, it's another field where the patent attorney needs to be able to understand the law as it relates to litigation and handling the lawsuit, but also understand the science, certainly well enough so that you can make the arguments as to why the accused product or the accused device does or doesn't infringe the patent of your client. So those are the kind of attorneys we're talking about when we throw out intellectual property attorneys. So trademark, copyright, and then patents. Most people in the field, and I'll primarily talk about the patent side, because again, that's the most crowded part of the field. Right. Most of us did not start out law school and probably even undergrad thinking we'd be patent attorneys or IP attorneys. Most of us kind of ended up on that path. And you get there primarily by in undergrad, having a hard science background, uh, what I refer to as hard science. So that's typically could be engineering of various varieties, uh, electrical engineering, chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, it could be biology, it could be chemistry, any of these uh, fields that we refer to as hard science. Um, it's not impossible or improbable, but it is significantly less often that you run into someone that has a bachelor of arts in English or a corporate communications degree that goes on to law school and then goes in the field of intellectual property. And again, you do see it every now and then, but the reason you don't see it often is because like I described, in the field, you have to have people who are uh, technologically inclined and someone who can uh, certainly open up a patent, read the first couple of pages and, and fully understand what's going on or understand what's going on to a great degree. So, so that's kind of just a little bit of background for me. I'm one of the stories often told. I went to undergrad, studied electrical engineering. And in undergrad, I, I did consider law school. And the reason I considered it was because I'm going along in undergrad, doing my thing, having a good time in, in many respects. But the curriculum was difficult. Electrical engineering, it's a curriculum that is very challenging. And I found it challenging probably primarily because a lot of what you're studying is a system but it's a system that you have to envision what's going on. The movement of electrons is not something you really can have visual representation of. It's not like, you know, I have friends that are mechanical engineering degree holders and, you know, back in the day when we were school majors and I would talk about it and we go back and forth over whose major is harder. And I'd say, well, you guys can see what you do. You know, you take the widget, you take the gear, you know, you take the pulley, all these different things. But in electrical engineering, the idea of putting an imagination as to an electron moving in this direction, that direction, moving at a certain speed, a speed that, you know, we, we can't even really think about. It can be a challenge. So I go through the curriculum and I do okay. I'm making grades here and there. I did in my very first semester make a D in my intro to electrical engineering class. And that actually was good in the end because it scared me enough to buckle down in a way that I, that I didn't think I'd have to do before I got that grade. But, but throughout the rest of my time in the major, I, I did fine. I ultimately graduated as a B student. But I'm going through the major and I'm having my challenges. I'm finding that I have to spend a lot of time to make the grades I'm making. I'm studying with other students who I can see I'm going through a problem set or I'm going through a sign reading 
and they're getting through the reading faster and they understand it to a degree that I may not quite got to. So now I got to go back and read the chapter again. And so I can see that, okay, there's some people that have a more natural ability to pick this up than, than me. So I started questioning, well, you know, I have some other strong points. I have some soft skills. I think I can leverage that some of these other students I'm talking about that I'm studying with, I can see they lack the soft skills. So I want to find some place where I can kind of have certain strengths that allow me to have a one up. And so I took a couple of classes as a part of my curriculum to get a certain amount of electives. And I took some electives so I could get an idea of what I thought law school might be about. So I took a legal environment of business class that was provided through a business school. I took a legal aspects of engineering practice class. That was actually a class that was made available through the engineering college. And then I took a constitutional law class, which was a class that was provided through the School of Government, which is a liberal arts class. But across the three, I felt like I started to get a much more comfortable idea of what I thought law school would be like. And I got comfortable with the idea. But I'm marching along through the curriculum. I'm getting closer to graduation. And when I was in undergrad, which is the late 90s, the big thing at that time, a lot of companies were recruiting engineering majors and paying us $50,000 a year when you graduate, which Back then, you know, the idea of 50000 a year, you could have told me I was a million dollars a year. <laughs> so I decided, okay, well, let me stick with the path. Let me go ahead and graduate. Let me take on the interviewing opportunities that come along and then just see where this thing leads. So summer before I graduated, I did an internship. And that internship was with Ford Motor Company, which is based out of Dearborn, Michigan. I, I enjoyed the internship. I liked working, uh, the things I've worked on at Ford. I like the projects that I was exposed to and I really enjoyed some of the people I worked with. But I wasn't a big fan of the idea of returning to, to Michigan. Uh, shout out to Michigan, uh, <laughs> good state. Coming from Houston, Texas, it didn't quite, uh, didn't quite do it for me. So I decided, okay, we can go back to school, gonna interview with some other companies and then we see what happens. So now it's fall semester of my last year in school. Companies come to campus. I so, you know, uh, make the selection interview with certain companies. Certain companies agree to take me on to interview. I do that. And in the end, I ended up getting four job offers. I'll talk about them because I think they're all important. I got an offer from Enron, which now is a company most young people probably never have heard of. I got an offer from Arthur Anderson, which is a consulting company. And at the time, that was the job offer that I was most keen on because I thought going back to me wanting to leverage soft skills, I thought the world of consulting would allow me to do that. I got a job offer from Merrill Lynch. I'll talk about why that's important in a second. And I got a job offer from Motorola, which 15 years ago was more popular of a company than they are today. They've sort of been surpassed by Apple and some of the other handset manufacturers. And so Enron, I got that job offer, I thought about it, but one of the things that gave me some concern is I couldn't figure out how they made money. And turns out some of my intuition there was, was, was well-founded because they ended up probably within two years of, of me getting that job offer, they ended up imploding. Hmm. Arthur Anderson was a consulting company and Enron was one of their bigger customers. So once Enron went down and some of the other things that happened around that time, they ended up suffering a similar fate as Enron. When I interviewed with them, I wanted them to make an offer that acknowledged the fact that I have an electrical engineering degree versus a lot of the other people they were interviewing who had business degrees. And they refused to do that. They said, no, we're gonna pay everyone the same. 
So I said, okay, that's disappointing to hear. The job I ended up accepting was with Motorola where I would be a sales engineer. A sales engineer is somebody who you need to understand the devices and the technology behind the devices that we were selling. And then you go out into a marketplace, a sales office, and now you're a salesperson who has customers that you need to work with who are typically design engineers at companies and you're trying to convince them for their design to use your products. Mm -hmm. So Motorola, I got that job and, and, and in the last job I mentioned was Merrill Lynch. The reason the Merrill Lynch job is significant is because if I would have accepted that job, I would have worked in the World Trade Center. Mm. And the World Trade Center ended up getting hit by the airplanes behind 9-11. And the building that I interviewed in and I would have worked in was affected. And I actually have two uh, former classmates who took that job and they're fine today. They weren't harmed in the 9-11 tragedy. But that morning, they both didn't go into the office. So had they gone into the office, you know, who knows? Had I accepted that job and, you know, decided to work that day, maybe I'm on one of the floors that was significantly affected. So, so I ended up not accepting that job offer. So I accepted the Motorola job offer. And I'll try to bring it back full circle here in a second. So the Motorola job offer starts out as a rotational program. You spend two years um, getting familiar with the different parts of the company, getting familiar with the products that you're going to sell. And then at the end, you go to a sales office and now you have customers and an office you work out of and customers you got to sell products to. So when the two-year rotational program is wrapping up, they ask you to make a selection. Give us three choices that you want. My three choices were Chicago, Atlanta, and Dallas. Motorola decided to send me to Detroit. <laughs> and so... Here I am, you know, having decided I don't want to live in Michigan, Motorola unilaterally decided to send me to a sales office that I gave no indication I wanted to be in. And at that point, I'm stuck with the decision because, um, you know, it's either quit or go to Detroit, right? I made, I gave, I made them aware of my desired uh, choices and they said, nope, you're going to go to this particular office. And I think in the end, what happened is they need that office as compared to others, needed some resources. They needed some, some technical salespeople. Um, and the office was doing relatively well in terms of performance. Not enough people in the program I was in chose that office because I think we were all of like mind that, okay, Detroit isn't exactly where we want to be. So because I had a resume uh, that had, having spent a summer living in Detroit, right. I think that's probably how I ended up getting swept into that. The other person who from my program also went to my same office is from Chicago and he went to undergrad in Indiana. So I think they saw him as a Midwesterner and he got stuck going out there with me. So from the minute um, I found out that I was gonna be going to Detroit, I had some, some concerns about going there, particularly long-term, uh, already had reservations. So I started thinking, okay, you know, let me figure out where I am, what do I want to do? You know, in football, there's a term down and distance, right? And, you know, kind of down and distance, I think, for the most part, means figuring out what down you're on so you know how many you have left, and then distance, how much distance do you need to cover to get another set of downs? But I think another way to think of the phrase is, well, when there's a play caller who's thinking about a bunch of things going on in the game. They're thinking about the score. They're thinking about the fact that so-and-so just got hurt. They're thinking about the fact that there was a turnover, the psychology of the team. 
a lot of times it just boils down to down and distance. Just, you know, get right back to that, okay, size up where you are and size up the next things you need to do to give yourself additional opportunities. So when I found out I was going to Detroit, I thought back, I don't know about this long-term, you know, I think I want to give myself opportunities and put myself in position of if I don't like it being out there, I'm not stuck being out there because I feel like I have nowhere else I can work. And so I thought back to, well, you know, I was interested in law school. So I started looking around. I found out that one of the law school prep courses, uh, Kaplan or Princeton Review, they were offering a free practice LSAT. Mm-hmm. And for them, I'm sure it was an opportunity to get some people in who were interested in law school and then they try to get you to buy their services once you got your poor scores, right? right. But I went ahead, took advantage of that opportunity, that service on a Saturday, got up, went in, took the exam. At the time I thought, I proved to myself, well, I got this in the bag, law school. I'm going to do well. I'll take the LSAT. Don't even have to take one of these courses. And then I'll end up going on to this and that law school. But that's not quite how it went. I really, more than anything, learned that I got a lot of work to do to get a high enough score to put me in position and go to the kind of schools I would want to go to. But it was important that I took that exam. And I took it, I think, roughly two months before I left to move to Detroit. So then I moved to Detroit. I moved to Detroit now armed with the knowledge of knowing I got to take one of these prep classes. So I get there, I find an apartment, I start my job, I get comfortable with kind of the, my, my day to day. And then pretty quickly after that, I start looking for a LSAT prep class to start taking. So I take the class, which, you know, probably lasted something like three, four months and get comfortable, get confident in my improved test stage skills. And then eventually I sign up for an exam. I take the exam. I get a good enough score. I apply to certain schools. Uh, one of those schools being the University of Texas, where I went to for undergrad. At the time, I'm living in Detroit, Michigan. And part of my strategy was, let me make sure I get into a school that's near a big city that I felt like I'd be comfortable living in. And so, so, I, so I applied to University of Illinois law school, uh, which is in Champaign-Urbana, but that's near enough to Chicago that I felt like, okay, if I went to that law school, I could live in Chicago. And I did that just kind of in different states. But ultimately, I got into Texas. And then once I got into Texas, then I made things a lot simpler. My wife now, but girlfriend then, she was at Texas. So it was an opportunity to just move back, old stomping grounds, comfortable with the campus. It's a good law school, highly ranked pedigree and all that good stuff. And sometime following getting my LSAT results and getting accepted into the law school, I went ahead and turned in my resignation at work and then I went to UT. But what I want to kind of bring everything back to in that story is just sort of the idea that some years ago I decided I don't want to live in Michigan. And then I'm presented with these options after undergrad, any one of which could have led to sort of a dead end road. And then I choose the one opportunity and then that opportunity brings me back to Michigan. And then when I'm in Michigan, that leads to me end up going to law school, which put me on a path where I'm happy with what I do now. So, right. so sometimes it's real funny how things work out. Right, right. And also kudos to you for not just sticking with what just made you content or just just the status quo. Like you said, the money that you were offered at first was, was good money. But you knew that's just not what you want to do at a certain time. And especially moving to a certain place where you didn't want to move and you took those steps to get to your goal. And that's great. That's great. Now, I graduated in 2001. So to add to what you're saying, in in 01, there was a tech bubble mm -hmm. around that time and the the tech bubble bursted. And so when I'm at work, and this is when I'm at work at the time in my Motorola days, 
I'm seeing signs of the economy having certain effects, negative effects on Motorola. And probably within nine months of being in my two-year rotational program, I'm seeing people who trained me three months ago get laid off. Mm. So when that kind of thing happens, you want to be perceptive, keep your eyes and ears open. And when you notice it, it, you know, you have to know if the person that just trained you got let go, then you know you're not that special. Right. And then there's an opportunity that that could be your fate at some point down the road. So it really put me in the mind space of really thinking hard about, okay, what do I see long-term? Do I think this is going to be a fit? And like I said, once the decision was made to not grant one of my three requests and instead send me where the company wanted to send me, it really yeah. put me more in this selfish, okay, well, what do I want? You know, let me forget the company for a second. Think about what I want. And, and luckily it all, it all worked out. Yeah, that's good. You know, the company's going to think about themselves too. So why not think about yourself? So, yeah. All right. And now in that you mentioned you were a patent litigator at a law firm and now you're in a corporation, you're a counsel at a corporation. So can you talk about just that transition and what's that like? Yeah. So when you come out of law school, there are going to be a number of graduates who are going to have an opportunity to be recruited by what we call big law firms, but essentially they're large law firms of a, of a corporate size. So we're talking a firm of 3,000 attorneys across the world or a firm of maybe 500 attorneys within a particular state, mm-hmm. 200 attorneys within a particular office in a particular city, but firms that are in you know, uh, tall buildings and that kind of thing. And so these big law firms offer usually the most lucrative starting salaries. And so when you come out of law school, a lot of people have their eyes on receiving one of those opportunities. And when you do well enough in law school, the big law firms are going to come after you. They're going to recruit you. They're going to, you know, even wine and dine you. So when I was graduating, I was fortunate enough to do well enough to attract the attention of some of these big law firms. And the job offer I accepted was with a Silicon Valley law firm, but I worked out of the Austin office for that Silicon Valley law firm, which was good for me because obviously I know at that point I've been in Austin for undergrad and law and law school and fairly comfortable with the city. And again, my girlfriend then, wife now, she was in school also down the road in San Antonio. So it was a really good pairing for me. So I was fortunate to start that law firm because I had really good mentors who were younger attorneys. So they were probably at the time, I'm a first year attorney and they're probably five and six year attorneys. And because they had been around the block and knew the ropes, they were willing to uh, take me under their wing and show me the ropes. And it allowed me to learn the culture, learn about how to navigate within the big law firm environment at a much quicker pace. The big law firm environment can be pretty intimidating, particularly if it's your first job. I mean, if you go from being a paper boy or working at a grocery store to getting an undergraduate degree, to then going to law school and then your first sort of big job is at a law firm, it could be a very challenging place to get your bearings. And so under their guidance and their mentorship, I learned how to deal with the fact that when you're in that kind of environment, what you largely have to do is sell yourself. And it's a lot like in the sports leagues being a free agent. So you can work with anyone and anyone can decide to work with you or you could work with just one person and that one person can decide they're only going to work with you. You're usually brought into a particular office, and when you're brought into that particular office, someone in that office, more often than not, recruited you. So there's going to be this natural alignment where you start out at least working with that person, and that person will give you assignments, and you'll kind of go from there. But as you proceed along, there are going to be other attorneys and 
let's just say partners. So the partners are the senior attorneys within the law firm who share in the ownership. And the ownership may consist of 500 partners, may consist of 100 partners, but a large group of people who have been around and at that firm for such a long, for long enough time that now they've been given the opportunity to buy into ownership. And so these attorneys are typically very skilled. They, you know, 12 years, 20 years, 30 years, they've been in the game. But nonetheless, you're going to start with the first partner who took an interest in you when they brought you along to join the firm and join your office. But eventually you'll attract the attention, assuming you're doing the right things and you're producing the right kind of well-received work product. You'll attract the attention of other people who, oh, okay, let me see if I can bring you on and join me to work on this project. And then you just kind of proceed along in that fashion. And before you know it, you've hopefully developed a good reputation amongst the various partners who are in position to staff you on projects. So you go along and you do that. And when you're in your younger years, when you're on a particular project, you are someone who's kind of having assignments given to you. And your job is to complete those assignments in successful fashion and hopefully in impressive fashion turn them in and then get the next assignment. Mm -hmm. As you march along in your career, you're now a third year attorney, a fourth year attorney. All those assignments aren't discrete projects, they're more comprehensive. They involve different pieces of that particular project. And so you're gonna be assigned a whole portion of a project. And within that portion, there now may be first and second year attorneys who you now delegate assignments to so that when they complete those assignments, it helps you be the person that's assembling all this to complete that particular portion of the project. Then you march along and you become a senior associate, senior attorney, and maybe your years seven to 10 in your career. And now that partner, he helped bring in the project, he or she helped bring in the project. They wind and dine, they schmooze, they networked with a particular client who decided to hire the law firm for a particular project. And that partner, once they bring in that project, they're gonna give some time and attention to oversee things happening. But in, often it's the case that that same partner is now chasing the next piece of business. They're now trying to work on the next project to bring through the door. So the senior attorney, senior associate, that's someone who's gonna be tasked with, okay, the partner's gonna give you everything. Right check over your shoulder and expect you to communicate with them in a way that gives them confidence everything's being handled but really that's your opportunity to one show you can manage everything because when you're a senior attorney you're really auditioning to the partners to give you an opportunity to join that partnership let me become a, a co-owner along with the rest of you a year from now or two years from now and so um because of the mentorship i had through those mid-level attorneys when I first started, I learned enough early on to know, I don't think I want to work in this environment, that being a big law firm environment, seven, eight, nine, 10 years into my career, um, and then eventually become partner because the environment is fairly demanding of your time. And when you have interests that um, exist outside of work, it could be a challenge to work those in when, you're, uh, when you have a job that's that demanding of your time. And so having come to that conclusion, my challenge became, okay, since I know I don't want to still be here seven, eight, nine, 10 years from now, I got to figure out how can I acquire the right kind of skills and, and, and marketable skills 
and present them in a way and figure out a way to leverage those skills in some other environment, some mm-hmm. other entity, some other structure. And I learned, okay, one opportunity that may exist is once you acquire a certain amount of skills, you can go work for a company directly rather than being an attorney at a big law firm that represents that company. And so the, a lot of big companies tend to hire attorneys to be attorneys that are exclusively for the company. And we refer to that as in-house attorneys. And so that tends to happen, that being um, acquiring the requisite skills to be attractive to these companies, that tends to happen in the mid-level years. So sometime between years three and year six. Um, Once you're more senior, it can still happen, but I think a lot of times those companies focus on someone that is lesser trained because they don't have to pay you as much to come through the front door. And then once you come through the front door, they can spend the remaining years training you specifically about their business. So again, because I learned early on kind of, well, here's the fate that waits me if I continue to hang around here and I learn about the, the natural path to becoming a partner. I learn enough to know, well, I don't think that's something that fits what I see for my life. So then I started taking on certain assignments within the law firms that I worked at to kind of shape my experience and my eventual resume in a way that I felt like I can now market the experience I've gained in the marketplace and be more attractive to potential employers. And so the big thing there is when I was at the law firms, one of my primary practice areas was patent litigation. And we talked about patent litigation earlier. Patent litigation is a practice area that if you want to go in-house, there are a lot of opportunities if you live in the Bay Area where there's Facebook, Google, and your big tech company. But when you're in Houston, Texas, working amongst Exxon, working amongst Chevron, working amongst Shell, those companies all have some form of intellectual property attorneys, but they don't really spend too many resources having patent litigation-based disputes. Mm-hmm. Their technology is protected by patents, but it's not something they fight about that often. So it becomes harder to market yourself as someone with patent litigation skills if you have intentions of staying, you know, living in Houston, Texas. But me being fortunate to figure that out early, I learned, okay, what I'm going to have to do is get some contract drafting, contract review, contract negotiation skills, because there are a lot of companies in Houston and any city that's going to need an in-house attorney to be able to do those things with contracts, review them, negotiate them, and draft them. And so I was able to navigate my way through the law firms to get those kind of assignments, build that skill set. And then when the opportunity struck around my fifth year of practice, I was able to apply to work in-house at a company and I got that job and things worked out from there. And then eventually I came over to where I work now at the cancer center. It's great. That's good. And I really like the breakdown you did of the large law firm. So it's basically like the partners are your business developers, your senior associates are kind of like your project managers. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That that was a great breakdown of it. I like that. And I didn't know this, but you're working with any type of partner. It's not just one partner you're working with when you get in there. That's right. And I think for anyone in the listening audience who happens to hear this and they're thinking about potentially going down the path of going to law school and if they're fortunate to get an opportunity to work at a big law firm. One of the things that I want to drive home is when you're at a big law firm, one of the things that's going to become important is mentorship 
and sponsorship. And there's a distinction. Mentorship, I got mentorship, like I mentioned, from those mid-level associates. They weren't partners, but they were people who were more senior than me and they knew enough from things they've seen, things they've experienced to, you know, pass that knowledge down to me. And it was helpful. Sponsorship is largely going to be from somebody who has a much higher degree of influence within the organization. And by them really stamping you, it elevates you within that organizational structure so that other people see you in a better light and they decide to give you more opportunities. And then from there, you got to take the opportunity to do what you can with it. But I bring it up because when you're in an environment like a large law firm and when you're an attorney who's in an ethnic minority or maybe you're a woman attorney and you're at a law firm where there's mostly men, it would be ideal and it would be nice if you could find a mentor who, or a sponsor who happens to be a woman if you're a woman or a mentor who is a uh, Latino male if you happen to be a Latino male. But most large law firms are in the partnership ranks heavily dominated by white males. And so when you get in those environments, the thing that's going to become important is not kind of sitting back and waiting for a mentor or a sponsor to be someone who looks like you, but to really jump on an opportunity to connect with someone who could be a mentor or sponsor if that someone takes a sincere and genuine interest in you. And however that connection you know, happens to uh, take place, leverage it. So if you used to be a Boy Scout and there's a partner at your law firm who was a Boy Scout themselves, or there's a woman partner who has two sons who are currently in the Boy Scouts. She learns they used to be a Boy Scout that leads to a conversation. You know, maybe that leads to a connection that you develop with that partner and then you just kind of take things from there. Yeah. You don't want to work with people who you don't connect with, but people who you just have a natural connection with and however that starts, however it begins, take advantage of it and pursue it. And that could lead to an opportunity that you wouldn't have envisioned beforehand. And, you know, I'll kind of drive that point home with this particular story. So my manager at where I currently work at the cancer center was a partner at the the more recent law firm that I worked at before I decided to take an opportunity to become an in-house attorney. And at that firm, he had kind of reached a point in his career where he decided he no longer wanted to work at the firm and he wanted to go on and do something else that would be a little less demanding of his time. And so he ended up coming over to the cancer center. Well, when we worked together, um, I had developed a genuine connection with that partner. And we would go to lunch, you know, at least a couple of days a week while I was at the law firm. Once he left to go to the cancer center, we lost connection for a little bit of time. But then I ran into him at a gathering that was thrown by one of the attorneys who we knew in common. And at the gathering, we reconnected, exchanged numbers, and then just kind of agreed, okay, let's try to get together when we can. And usually when you run into someone, you kind of, oh, we should get together sometime tends to be hollow words that no one really follows up on because we're all busy, right? Mm -hmm. But I actually decided, okay, this was a partner, highly experienced, someone who could definitely be someone to pass down certain knowledge to me if I'm able to have time with them and download some of that information. So I took them up on the opportunity or the offer, I guess, to have an opportunity to get together. And so I gave them a call one day and then we decided to have breakfast. And then we did that for probably, I'd say on average, uh, two to three times a year. You know, nothing too crazy, but just enough to kind of touch base, see how each other is enjoying their new opportunities and go from there. 
So when I left the law firm to go in-house, I initially started at a company that's in the oil and gas space and worked there just shy of four years. In that third, fourth year, uh, the oil and gas market had a significant downturn in terms of price per barrel. And that unfortunately impacted the company I worked at, the kind of projects and revenue that we were generating. And within that company, a lot of my work was supporting a particular department slash division and that department slash division their product offering and service offering was significantly impacted by the drop in the price per barrel so towards the end of my time there it was clear and announced by the ceo there's going to be layoffs at the company so within the legal department all nervous and hoping it's not going to be us i had a nervous feeling because i could see that the department that i do a lot of my work for they're they're really struggling and so when you're sizing up, okay, how exposed you are to layoffs, you know, it's natural to come to conclusion, well, if I'm spending a lot of my time supporting a group that isn't doing well, you, you know, you can see yourself as expendable. So I go along, do my thing, keep my fingers crossed, that kind of thing. But ultimately, one day, the general counsel, who is the leader of the legal department, we do a performance evaluation meeting. And it was kind of funny the way she did it. I have a good relationship with her. She, you know, she was a really nice manager. But the way she did the performance evaluation is we just had an hour-long meeting as if I'm going to be there the next year. And so, oh, Amy, she did an outstanding job doing this, that. Here's areas where I want you to improve. So, you know, take, you know, keep that in mind. And, you know, in the next cycle, let's see if you can make improvement there. I'm like, okay. And I'm getting ready to walk out the office. Okay, thanks. You know, great meeting with you. Well, actually, if you got a second, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about. And then she lets me know, she informs me that the company has decided to let a certain amount of people go. The legal department has to let a certain amount of people go. And although she hates to make the decision, I'm going to be one of those people. Wow. And so I'm sitting there probably shocked more than anything based on the way the meeting had gone. Right. had an hour-long meeting based on the premise that I'm going to be here and then you're now within seconds telling me, well, actually, you're only going to be here for another a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that came out of that discussion and that I still give her credit for is she gave me notice by about a month and she let me know, hey, within a month's time, this is going to happen. And so that gave me a month long head start on getting my resume together, start looking for other opportunities and, and so forth. And so a certain amount of time passes by. And then eventually I do get let go as a part of the reduction in force. But then an opportunity opened up on the job market and it was an opportunity to be a in-house intellectual property attorney at a cancer center. And in the role you would be working on transactions, contracts and agreements. And so I see the opportunity, it's posted by a recruiting firm, contact the recruiting firm. They let me know, yeah, this is the cancer center. you know, the particular one. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, well, that's where the former partner who I had a existing relationship works. And so, you know, I was like, okay. So, uh, you know, I felt pretty good about how that might go. So I I call him and we agree to have breakfast. So we have breakfast and during the, actually we had lunch, sorry, we had lunch. And so during the lunch, you know, I let him know what's going on with me, how I was unfortunately caught up in the reduction in force at my previous employer, which he knew about that job. Cause again, we had been meeting and, you know, how's the job going? And that, so I let him know, gave him basically the update that I was, uh, was laid off. 
And then I told him, but I heard about this opportunity and I'm going to toss my name in the hat. And what I was looking for was, oh, Amos, I, I got you. Don't worry, I'll take care of you. But, you know, he's, he's a consummate professional. That's not how he played it. How he played it was, well, Amos, you know, I'm excited to hear that you're interested in the opportunity. Love to have you submit your resume and then we can see where it goes from there. You know, very noncommittal as to what's going to happen after submitting my resume. But I do submit my resume. Eventually, that leads to me getting an interview. And my understanding is they brought in seven people to interview for the position. I find out from the recruiter, I made the first round, and now they've narrowed it down to two people. And during the course of interviewing, I wasn't sure how much help or no help I was getting from the colleague of mine, the former partner who's now at the cancer center. But I, I knew this happened. The position that I was applying for opened up because there were two people that did the job. One was going to retire. And then my manager now, former partner, he was going to step up and take that person's job. And so now they're backfilling his position. So when I interviewed, I interviewed with the person that's going to retire. And when we sat down and interviewed, she really spent most of the time talking to me about things like, how was my most recent vacation? And did I enjoy it? What did I like about it? And then we talked about a few other items that really didn't have a whole lot to do with my resume, or my background or my experience. And it was a, a good conversation, one I was enjoying, but then I got concerned that so much time is passing by, I'm not giving myself an opportunity to convey to her, hey, I have good experience and so forth for this position. So at some point I interjected in the course of our discussion and I just said, hey, I noticed as time is running, I haven't given you an opportunity to ask me questions about my background, my resume. So I want to make sure I, give, you know, I do that and give you an opportunity to do so. And she said, oh, no, no, I don't need to worry about any of that. I know all that stuff. I just want to learn more about the fun stuff. And I kind of had a sense then that the former partner, my manager now, he probably talked me up in a manner that gave her a certain amount of confidence. And now she's really just trying to use the interview to kind of get to know me better. Yeah, super um, so, so I kind of knew then that, okay, I think he is in the background doing a little bit of Geppetto, pulling strings in my face. <laughs> and so to fast forward through the story, I ended up getting an offer to join. And so did the other person they interviewed. <laughs> and so the two of us that were in the final round, they hired both of us, which was actually in many ways a blessing because it ultimately meant that our team, whereas it would have been two, now it's three. So as the workload increased, Across our department, there's now another resource to kind of help you so that you're not so busy that you're working late nights every night or working on the weekends, that kind of thing. And so, and so we have a you know pretty good team. But the thing I really wanted to mention in that story is just the importance of the connection. Right. The connection that I developed is one that when I developed it and, and I guess continue to nurture it, it wasn't for any particular reason other than just enjoying having that connection and recognizing I don't have that connection with that many attorneys that are that much more senior than me. So this one is worthwhile to hang on to. Yeah. And then naturally that led to some opportunity down the road that worked out in my favor. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that story drives home to anyone listening. There's just great importance in as you navigate and matriculate through your career, forming genuine connections where you can and where it makes sense and where it feels right. And then just continuing to nurture those relationships as best you can. Yeah, that's great advice. That's great advice, whether it's law, finance, engineering, anything. 
the importance of networking, those connections, making those mentors. And like you said earlier in there, it's not going to fall in your lap. A lot of times you have to be proactive and get out there and do it. So no, great advice. Great advice. You know, can you talk about what a typical day of yours looks like? Sure. Most of my days are going to begin with kind of the average office employee protocol. You you come in, you start to check your email to see what's piled up from the day before or what new things have come in in terms of assignments or projects that you need to jump on that you didn't think when you went to bed you would have to, you know, tackle. So I start with doing that, but then throughout the course of the day, I'm going to go into most days having an idea of the kind of things I need to work on to push something further along. So usually I'm working on a project matter and there's a desired end goal and there's things you're doing along the way to get to that end, end goal. So I'm gonna to come into the office on any particular day with some idea of here are the things I need to do today to continue to work towards the end goal on that particular project. During the course of the day, there are gonna be things that I need to do on my end, kind of in the quiet space of my office, but there are gonna be other things where I need to collaborate with the client rep that I'm working with internally. Uh, most of what I'm working on the end goal is for the benefit of an internal client. So in the very beginning of this conversation, I mentioned we have a office of technology commercialization. So a lot of what I do is in support of that particular department. And so on any particular day, I'm going to have various meetings with people in that department for different projects that I'm working on. And in the era of COVID, most of those meetings are now happening much like this meeting. It's happening through telecommunication, phone call, or maybe video conference. And we may spend an hour, we may spend 30 minutes talking about a particular aspect of the project so that I've now obtained enough information to go off and kind of work on my piece. So a lot of times I'm working with someone who may be a technology analyst. They may be a licensing manager who spends most of their time understanding the technology and trying to figure out how to commercialize it. But what they're not spending a lot of time thinking about is how to deal with the license agreement that's going to cover the commercialization effort. So I have to spend time sitting with them, talking with them to understand certain things about the asset that we're licensing. And then I'll turn around and start to work on the agreement that's going to cover the particular transaction. A decent portion of my day is going to involve working on a contract, drafting a contract. There are other days where I'm going to spend a decent amount of my time reading reading a 50-page agreement, potentially reading some developments in the law. So that may be reading a case or reading about an article on developments within the law. And usually that happens so that I'm staying abreast of things that are happening that may affect licensing. And then there are other things that being an employee within a kind of corporate structure, usually as a corporate citizen, you're going to be called upon to do certain things that you have to do for the benefit of the organization that aren't necessarily tied to your job. And so there's going to be parts of my day where I'm doing things like that. Like, for instance, today I had to fill out a survey that's tied to how the cancer center is trying to solicit from the employees how good of a job the cancer center is doing, providing information regarding COVID, responding to the sensitive needs employees may have regarding COVID. And so I'd spend some time going through that survey and filling it out. And so things like that also happen in the course of my day. Okay. All right. I know you mentioned contract drafting, negotiating, and reviewing skills as some of the skill sets that you need. So what skill sets and characteristics would you say are most important to be successful in your line of field? Um, 
I'm, I'm going to say some things that probably jump out as obvious and some other things that maybe don't jump out as so obvious. The first one is attention to detail. Um, and that one may stand out as a bit more obvious. I think most people are going to be successful in the field of being an attorney or in the field of law. They're going to have an ability to pay attention to fine details. I mean, in the world of contract drafting and putting sentences together, a comma in one place versus the other could change the whole meaning of a sentence. So to be successful, you're going to have to be somebody who has some attention or at least should be somebody who likes to pay attention to certain details and have an eye for certain details. Two other things I'll mention, which maybe don't jump out as obvious, emotional intelligence. As an attorney, a lot of what you're doing involves collaborating with people that are on multiple different sides of a desired end goal. So you'll have a client and the client wants a certain thing to happen. And in their desire to see that certain thing come to fruition, they may be hot, they may be heated, they may be upset, they may be disappointed, they may be defeated. And so one of the things you have to do as their representative, as their counselor, as their advocate, you gotta be able to sense these things going on with your client and try to turn the dials in a direction that increases the likelihood that you're gonna get the desired outcome in the end. On the other side of that same desired outcome will be maybe a defendant or maybe a negotiating partner to get a particular transaction done. And they're going to have an attorney who represents them more often than not. And so that defendant or the negotiating partner on the other side of the transaction, they want certain things. And when the things they want may be at odds with what your client wants and for the deal to ultimately be successful, you need both people to walk away equally satisfied with what they got out of it. And so the higher your emotional intelligence, the better you're going to be able to read what's going on in the minds of the various players in this whole set of affairs, right? So that being your client, that being the attorney for the other side, and that being the particular defendant or negotiating partner on the other side of the transaction. And I'll quickly give a story that maybe highlights that. So at the first company I worked at as an in-house attorney, I had a particular agreement that I was negotiating on behalf of the sales team that I represented. And the sales rep and I were approaching end of the quarter. And end of the quarter was a time of the year where a lot of deals happen because on the customer side, the customers usually have a budget end of the quarter, okay, I've only spent so much of my budget, so I want to spend more so that the company doesn't think that they gave me too big of a budget. So they just start buying things at the end of the quarter. So we were negotiating an agreement for the sale of a data product. And the other side seemed to be motivated in terms of the contact that the sales rep had seemed to be pretty motivated to get this deal done. But the attorney that was representing the other side and involved in negotiating to deal with me was just a difficult attorney to work with. I mean, just difficult in terms of, hey, we're presenting these terms and then they're, they're fighting us tooth and nail on every single thing, even though they have a particular client who has made it clear that they want to get this deal done and they're very, very motivated to do so. So sitting back and observing the scene and kind of reading the dynamics going on, I figured out that, okay, look, Ultimately, this attorney, I think, might have a little bit of ego involved, and they're just deciding to go mano a mano with me, and they don't want to give up any ground on the contract language. 
but I know that their client wants this deal to get done. So there was a lot of communication going back and forth by email. So I decided to write a particular email communicating to the other side. And I was communicating to the attorney, but I drafted the email with their client in mind. So, so I'm communicating, you know, like, let's say I'm sending an email to you, RJ, dear RJ, but everything I'm writing is really for the benefit of their client because I know that their client is copied on this email communication. Right. My hope was by treating the client as the, the ultimate recipient of the message, they would then take that message and apply pressure on their attorney. And so send the communication across. And the next thing I know, two days later, the other side, the attorney's client replied to my client and said, okay, yes, let's move forward and get the contracting done. And that attorney was not involved in the rest of the negotiation. Uh, I saw at some point another attorney was brought in, but that attorney was brought in to only get the deal done. I said, okay, I understand this has been finally negotiated. Please send me the final draft. And then we got the deal done. And so that's just kind of an instance of having an emotional intelligence where you can pick up kind of things will will help you be successful. And then the last thing I'll mention is one thing that is going to help an attorney be more successful is having an affinity for working with, manipulating, digesting large amounts of information. And because that's a lot of what we do as attorneys Uh, on a litigation matter, you know, it starts out with the drafting of a document, which we refer to as a complaint or petition to tell the world, here's why I'm suing you. But ultimately it's going to lead to a phase of uh, litigation that we refer to as discovery. And in discovery, you're going to obtain all kinds of documents that have evidence in them, but you got to have someone that can go through those documents and absorb what's being said in the documents so that you can present them ultimately to a jury in a way that convinces the jury you have the winning argument. To get a transaction done for a particular deal, it may be buying a company, it may be licensing technology, but you're going to get an agreement that's presented. It could be seeing agreements that are 100 pages long. I've seen agreements that are 10 pages long, but it's going to be a document of a certain size and you got to churn through it, understand what's being said, and then have an ability to dance within the document. I say dance, but I'm really saying the ability to navigate the document, negotiate certain parts, understand that if you change this language in this part part of page six, section number you know, 12, then that could have this effect on page three, section number four. And so you need to be somebody that can do that. And so I think if you can do these three things or have these three things, attention to detail, emotional intelligence, and some affinity for working with large amounts of information, you're going to stand a really good chance of uh, being successful in the field. Nice. Great. I like that. I like that breakdown. Now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? Yeah, there's two things I love about what I do. One is when you're working as an in-house attorney, you're a part of the team, the team being the employees at that particular company or that particular organization that are trying to get certain things done. When you're outside counsel, that being an attorney at a law firm, you're helping the team and the team may appreciate the help that they're paying you to provide but you're not looked at as a teammate in the, in the same way. Right. So one thing I enjoy about my job being an in-house attorney is feeling a part of the team mm-hmm. and being appreciated for the value added contribution I'm making to the team. Because one thing that's nice is when I'm at a law firm, I'm one of several attorneys. When I'm in-house, I'm one of a handful. 
And typically when you're working on a project, there's no one else that has your skill set. So when you do what you do successfully, they really appreciate it. So I enjoy the fact that there's an appreciation that's expressed more often for work I do as an in-house attorney versus other parts of my career. Yeah. I enjoy the colleagues I work with. I'm fortunate to have really good colleagues, including the one that I mentioned who I developed a connection with a long time ago at one of the law firms I worked at. So I'm fortunate to have the various relationships I do with the colleagues I have at work. And then the last thing that I really enjoy about what I do is the mental challenge and the mental stimulation. I'm someone who could be described as pretty analytical. And the various people who know me well, they would say overly analytical. <laughs> but having said that, having a mind like the, the way minds work, if I had a job that was really stuck to just the repetition of certain routines and just not a, a diversity in the kind of things assigned to work on or just a variety of tasks that stimulate and challenge different parts of my brain, I'd probably, after some time, grow a little discontent with the situation. So right. I'm fortunate to have a role in a position where there is a variety of things I work on. There's various kind of contract matters I'm involved in, which each one of them is its own version. And so it requires me to sort of really think about, okay, I don't want to put this together and kind of to exercise the parts of my brain that an analytical mind needs to stay stimulated. Right, right. No, makes sense. Okay, so filling a part of a team, the colleagues that you work with, and stimulating your mind are the mental challenge of where you work. So that's great. Now, what about on the flip side? What type of challenges are out there for you? I think, well, the, the most immediate challenge for me is going to be one that's brought about because of COVID. I mentioned one of the things I really enjoy about work is the colleagues I work with. And in saying that, it's the camaraderie that I have amongst the colleagues that I work with. And in the world of COVID, I've been working exclusively remotely since uh, mid-March. Yeah. And it's been announced within our organization that we'll work remotely exclusively till at least next March. Yeah, well. And, and when we go back next March, our department, the legal department, legal services department, will work from home or work remotely for at least three days a week. And so for me, my whole world has just kind of shifted. Whereas I went into the office every day and had lunch with various colleagues every day and had the ability to kind of just knock on someone's door and go in their office and, you know, write on their whiteboard when I want to exchange certain ideas. Most of that has now been removed and it's been replaced by the ability to communicate through different kinds of technology like Zoom or to get on a teleconference and, you know, we can both say, okay, let's turn to page six of this document and read the third paragraph together. And those kind of things can still happen, but not having that camaraderie, the challenge for me is kind of not losing part of what made the job joyful. And it hasn't happened yet. It being losing that part of me that made the job joyful. It's still joyful. It's still fine. But I'm also what, you know, six weeks into the, no, sorry, six months into this, right? right? Like once we're down the road and it's a year and a half, two years, I was just sort of trying to keep myself together so that mentally I know what to expect and I can appreciate the fact that it's a, just a new world. And so I got to find other ways to try to maintain that camaraderie. And there's ways to do it. Maybe things like these Zoom happy hour calls and things like that to just try to find other ways to have a connection with people that you work with. Yep. Like you said, it looks like it's a new normal. So we got to find some new ways. Sucks, but <laughs> we got to do it. All right. So any memorable moment that sticks out to you over your career? 
I'll mention two, two moments. I've now been practicing approaching 15 years. And so in 15 years, there's lots of memories, but I'll mention a couple of events that stand out. In my first year of practicing, I worked on a project that was understaffed. I had been working on another project that had consumed all my time. And in this particular understaffed project, they decided kind of last minute, oh, we need some resources. We need some people to bring in and help us figure out this and help us figure out that. And so I, you know, one of the people that's pulled in to help and I'm doing my part. And all that resulted in on back-to-back nights in a particular week, having to work at the office till 3 a.m. And this was in my first year working at a big law firm. And I remember thinking, oh, y'all didn't tell us about this. You know, like, you know, when you spend time going through working at a law firm for an internship or a clerkship, you know, it tends to be more of the firm putting on their best yeah. presentation of you as to, in terms of what you're going to do when you get there. So there's lots of lunches and whining and dining and you know, go home at four o'clock and that kind of thing. But the part where there'd be a chance that you could work till 3 a.m. in the office on back-to-back nights, they hid that from us. Mm-hmm. So well, that definitely stood, up, stood out as a wake-up call uh, in my career. And then the other thing that I'll mention is, and I just thought this was interesting from a globalization and culture standpoint. At that same firm in my first year, we represented a client who was a LCD manufacturer. So LCDs are liquid crystal displays, and you typically find them in your computer screens or your TV screen. And so this manufacturer would make the liquid crystal display, and then they would sell it to someone like Samsung, who would then make it a part of the finished product, which is a television or a computer monitor. So that LCD manufacturer decided to sue a particular company for infringing patents they had that covered their technology. The company they were suing, this LCD, sorry, let me back up. The LCD manufacturer we were representing was from Korea. And the company that they were suing was also from Korea. And so the client representative came into our office one day. The client's based in Korea, but they came into the United States for a week to spend time with us to help prepare our case. And one day we're sitting around having light conversation. And then the client shares, you know, in Korea, we couldn't sue that company. And the natural question is, well, why not? Well, in our culture, it would be considered dishonorable to sue that company. Um, You know, they're in the marketplace competing for business. We're in the marketplace competing for business. To sue them would be seen as underhanded. But hey, in America, you guys sue each other all the time. And so it's acceptable for us as a Korean company to come to America where we sell our products, the products are sold worldwide, and sue that company who also sells products in America. And I just thought, you know, from a globalization standpoint, from just understanding the difference in cultures, that just struck me as just a very interesting thing to be aware of. And that same client, by the way, while they were with us um, that week, one night we went to dinner and I think we went to a steakhouse. And when the food comes out, they, they were, there were three of them uh, who, who joined us for dinner. They started taking pictures of their plates. And now today in 2020, people do that all the time. They put it on Instagram. Right. But when this was happening, which is much closer to 2006, uh, you know, it was a curious thing to see them taking pictures of their plates. Why are you doing that? And they explain because they've never seen 
food uh, portions of this size right. on a plate. And they wanted to be able to go back home and show friends and family, hey, in America, this is real. This is how much food they bring out. And I thought, again, from a globalization and culture standpoint, pretty interesting uh, memory from, from my career. Yeah, yeah, nice. That is interesting. It's uh, honorable to sue in America. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Well, hey, Amos, we're at the end of this interview. I want to get to these quick hitter questions to ask you for fun, for people to get to know you a little bit better. But before we do that, though, is there anything that you would like to add, anything additional or anything you think I might have left off asking you? No, I think I've shared quite a bit about my career, the things I've seen, the things I've done, the things I've found uh, helpful for me. And I hope in this interview, I've conveyed certain information that people out there listening can use to benefit themselves as they go about trying to make certain things happen in their respective careers, whether it be pursuing an opportunity to go to law school and become an attorney or to become something else in some other field. So if anyone wants to get in touch with me about something I've shared in this interview that they'd like to follow up on, I can be reached primarily by email. That's probably the best way to reach me. And that's going to be, if you don't mind me sharing, RJ. Oh, yeah, definitely. So my name is Amos Olabumi. And so it's going to be A underscore Olabumi at yahoo.com. And Olabumi is O-L-U-B as in boy, U, N as in Nancy, M as in Michael, I. So A underscore Olabumi at yahoo.com. And for people who are on Facebook, I think you can find my Facebook page by going to facebook.com backslash Amos O. So facebook.com backslash Amos O. All right. All right. Let's go to these quick hitter questions. First one, what's your favorite sports team? I'm disappointed to shout them out at this particular moment, but it's going to be the Rockets. It's yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it, it, I, you know, <laughs> I'm actually wearing a Rockets t-shirt while we're doing this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, favorite sports team is the Rockets. Yeah, yeah, that was tough. Yeah. Favorite movie or show? Um, show is going to be The Wire. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Simon's show. It's, um, you know, I think, I think you and I have been a part of different discussions where people pit The Wire against Game of Thrones. Yeah. I still deal with The Wire. I understand how Game of Thrones has, in many people's minds, surpassed The Wire, but I'm still, I'm still one of these Wire babies, so <laughs> I'll go with The Wire. Either one, me. One A and one B for me. Yep. All right. Favorite musical artist or group? Um, he, you know, for whatever reason, as a male, he's easy to hate on, but I'm going to give it up to him and just say Drake. Yeah. Uh, You know, I was born in in Toronto, so Mm. fellow fellow Um, Uh T-Dot. But I'm going to go with Drake. I mean, his music catalog is starting to become harder and harder to deny, so. Yeah, it is. It is, man. From the mixtape to now, yeah, he's on top of it. Yeah. All right. Favorite vacation spot? I've been fortunate to have some good ones. I'll go with either Maui or or Kauai, both in Hawaii. But I enjoy them both tremendously for, for different reasons. But I, I'll say either Maui, Hawaii, or Kauai, Hawaii. Okay. Still haven't been to Hawaii. Need to check that out. And favorite food or drink? I think right now they won't let you in, unfortunately. But right, right. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> hopefully, true. once COVID passes, we'll be in there. Favorite food or drink? That's a hard one. There aren't too many things that could be served to me that I wouldn't enjoy eating. <laughs> uh, 
uh, I got a cast iron stomach and I, I, I enjoy most things. But I, I guess if I had to think of it in terms of, you know, kind of last meal, it, it's hard to beat a juicy piece of steak. So uh, I'll, I'll go with that. All right. Any certain restaurants the steak are from or any anywhere? There are quite a few pretty good steak restaurants here in Houston, Texas. We've frequented Steak 48 yeah. and Mastro's, which is a newer film yeah. for two. So, both, both do the job, um, but you know, there, there's other steakhouses I've been to. I think, you know, most, most steakhouses that can just do a nice job with uh, different cuts of meat. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, hey, Amos, this has been great. I learned a lot with this. You've given great advice, great descriptions, great uh, breakdown, and I love the stories that you give behind your descriptions. And 15 years practicing, just congrats on all your accomplishments, man. And thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you, RJ, for having me. Thank you for thinking of me. And I wish you continued success with, you know, scheduling more interviews and getting out more information to people out there who can use it. So, so I appreciate you. All right. Thanks. And before we go, can you give people uh, once again, your email address and the um, Facebook site? Yeah, sure. So email address is going to be a underscore O L U B as in boy, U. N is in Nancy, M is in Michael, I at yahoo.com. So that's A underscore Olabumi at yahoo.com. And then for those who are on Facebook, that's the only social media platform I'm on. But for those who are on, you can go to my page and find me by going to facebook.com slash Amos O. Great. All right. Thanks, Amos. Have a good one. All right. Have a good one. All right, too. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, or would like to be in the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.